Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Good morning and welcome to session or section two of this final section that we're on as we're looking at some of the letters of Paul. Last week we looked at the first section that we were talking about um, a period of conflict that dealt primarily with Jewish and Gentile conflict. We looked at the book of Galatians and then we looked at some false teaching aspects that also come into that period during uh, or in the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And as we get started, I want to uh, just sort of lay out for you the idea that um, these issues or these these conflicts that occur tend to build on one another. Uh, in other words, we don't leave the Jewish-Gentile conflict and the false teaching and move on to the next section, but we add another item to it. So as we are looking at three books today, 1 Corinthians, Romans, and 2 Corinthians, we will be adding to that the idea of practical and doctrinal clarity, but that underlying Jewish-Gentile conflict is still there, as well as the fear of false teaching is always there as well. As we get started, a couple of things that might be helpful for you. Um, just as visual references, um, obviously, uh, number one, uh, we are going to be looking at some scripture today, so having your Bible handy or uh, an electronic device to be able to look those passages up. Also, a map, uh, either in the back of your Bible from Paul's uh, third missionary journey, uh, would be helpful since the majority of these letters are going to be occurring during the time frame of Paul's third missionary journey, so that is helpful. But as we get started, um, let's briefly pause and pray, asking for God's help as we understand these letters. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your truth. We pray that we might understand your truth therefore understand your grace more and more. God, as we do that, that we would come into a beautiful understanding of your love for us and how you how you are working in our lives and even in the midst of this chaos God you are in control and you are teaching us and you're helping us to understand what it means to follow you in discipleship so father we are truly grateful for what it is that you are doing in our lives and we ask for your help as we seek to understand you greater. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Alright, so we are going to begin with the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, I will tell you, we're going to take quite a bit of time on Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians and Romans, and then kind of breeze through 2 Corinthians, since um, a lot of the issues are the same. Um, as we have been looking at each of these books, um, I wanted to to do this in a different way, trying to sort of tie all of them together under one concept or one idea. And we have noticed, and as a matter of fact, we're going to see the fact that there is a, uh, 
definite understanding in uh, Paul's letter, particularly in 2 Corinthians, the idea that Paul felt his ministry was a ministry of reconciliation. So as we have been looking at these letters, we've been looking at their relationship to that idea of reconciliation. <clears throat> For instance, with the book of Galatians, we saw where Paul said that the means of reconciliation is through faith and faith alone, and so, uh, so on and so forth. We will be uh, examining that concept um, as we look at these letters. So as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, the relationship that this particular letter, uh, epistle, has to the idea of reconciliation is that concept of misunderstanding. Uh, there w must have been some type of underlying issue that was occurring in the Corinthian church that led to them not fully grasping the concept of what this reconciliation meant how it was to be modeled in their lives, what the implications were for their lives. And so Paul is, is seeking to, to clarify some of those issues. Uh, this occurs during the second period of conflict, what we are calling practi practical and doctrinal clarity. The idea is that in these letters, Paul is going to clarify doctrinal issues, uh, what we might call teaching, just a big word for teaching, the the truths that the church was handed down and continued to hand down through the early uh, church, uh, what Paul often referred to in his personal letters to Timothy and Titus as the quote-unquote faith, um, and then also these practical issues that come up where Paul feels like he needs to address these issues and clarify. What's interesting, there is a letter that we have um, from a man named Clement, um, who was the bishop of the Roman church. So the same church that Paul would have written to the letter of Romans. And this um, would have been right around the turn of the century, from the 1st to the 2nd century. So around AD 95 through 105, somewhere in that period. Um, most scholars date it to about 100 AD. And it, the book is called the Book of First Clement. Uh, again, Clement was the Bishop of Rome. And uh, Clement has this to say. He says, The Church of God, which is at Rome, to the Church of God, which is at Corinth, elect, sanctified by the will of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, grace and peace from the Almighty God by Jesus Christ, be multiplied unto you. Brethren, the sudden and unexpected dangers and calamities that have fallen upon us, have we fear made us the more slow in our consideration of those things which you inquired of us? So what is interesting, one of the things we're going to see in the book of First Corinthians is that the church had written to Paul to ask him various questions. Uh, this probably would have been uh, because Paul wrote this letter more than likely from Ephesus on his third missionary journey. So at some time in the early 50s, so almost 50 years later, this church is still asking questions of other churches to clarify certain things. So while the letter, uh, the book of First Clement, isn't canonical, it's not part of the um, scriptures that we have in our New Testaments today, it's still interesting from a historical standpoint to see that this 
historical fact of uh, the church at Corinth asking questions and this idea of misunderstanding apparently was one that existed in perpetuity with them. They just couldn't uh, get this issue straightened out. So as we look at the book of 1 Corinthians, I'd like you to uh, take a look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And we'll look at, uh, well, let's go to verse 5. Paul says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you. For I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while, or even spend the winter, so that you can help me on my journey. Wherever I go, I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost. So it really does not take uh, a lot of scholarship to understand that Paul was writing this letter from Ephesus. His his intention was to stay there. We know from the book of Acts that he spent some time in Ephesus. Uh, and so more than likely this is where this letter was written. A um, couple of items about the church itself. There, the, the city of Corinth was one of the premier cities in the Greek um, area. Uh, it was very much akin to modern-day New York City, London, Paris. Uh, it was a thriving metropolis. It was a commercial hub, a commercial center. It sat on a narrow isthmus, um, and ships would would pass from east to west or west to east, and, and a lot of uh, people came through this city, and so Paul identified it very early as a key foundational city for the spread of the gospel, understanding that if he had a, a, a witness impact there, that it could have far-reaching effects into the Roman Empire. And so the church was established by Paul during his second missionary journey, but now on his third missionary journey, as he's uh, making his way back up through Achaia and into Macedonia and into Greece, he is recognizing the need to revisit these churches and strengthen them, establish them. Uh, and now he is just calling on them. Apparently, there are some issues that are going to come up by report, as well as uh, some that they write about. And so we'll, we will see those in, in a little bit. This church has been described by one scholar. I, I like this uh, depiction of it. It is the most immature, mature body of believers in the New Testament. The idea is that they had more teaching than any other church in the New Testament. However, because of their lack of understanding or their lack of submission to that teaching, uh, they were not practicing in any way, shape, or form what that teaching really brought to bear on their lives. And so I like that description. It's the most immature, mature body of believers in the New Testament. A couple of major themes or topics, and this gets a little bit confusing, so I want to spend a little bit of time on it. Uh, scholarship, when they look at uh, different letters of the New Testament, uh, whether they are in the New Testament or just existing outside the New Testament, they assign letters to those um, as an ABC letters to those epistles. And so scholars actually believe that there was a letter written prior to 1 Corinthians 
And that letter probably would have been very much like the, the book of Romans that we're going to look at next, which was a didactic type letter where Paul, having established the church on his second missionary journey, was now coming back and giving them a written record of the things that he had shared with them and therefore strengthening them. So if you, the reason that they believe this, if you look at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 9, Paul says, I have written you in my letter. Now, if this is 1 Corinthians, we're reading this, the idea would be, well, what letter is he talking about? And that's where scholars believe there is a previous letter, what they refer to as Corinthian A, that is lost now that we don't have. So I've written you in my letter, and then he goes on to talk about that. And so, again, that letter was probably akin to the book of Romans, a didactic letter, but it's, it's been lost. We do not have it. So Corinthian B, then, would actually be the book of 1 Corinthians that we have. And this letter is to deal with several troubling reports that Paul has received. For for instance, if you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Paul had sent Timothy and had sent him around to the churches as he was in some of these areas. And then Paul could respond to those issues that Timothy uh, would report back. And so apparently Paul has received either from Timothy or from others who were carrying a letter, hey, there's big problems down there at Corinth. And so Paul is beginning to deal with some of those issues. Then again in verse 9, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world. So apparently in Paul's first letter, the church had misunderstood what he had said. And he had told him, look, don't, don't be around sexually immoral people. And then he said, well, I'm not talking about the world. Uh, you live in the world. You can't remove yourself from that. I'm talking about within the church. And so there was some misunderstanding that Paul felt he needed to deal with as well as these troubling reports. There's also a great deal of division in the first chapter. We read about this idea that, you know, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. And so Paul is going to have to deal with that issue. But the source of that division is uh, under a lot of debate within scholarship. Um, some would say it is style. Some would say it is m maybe a ministry philosophy. Uh, one idea that I read that I think has a lot of merit, and I think there is some uh, perhaps indications of that, is this concept of an over realized eschatology that is that if you think about the way that prophecy comes in the scripture we get this idea of promises come and we experience them now but then there is a a future fulfillment in which we will see them uh, at some point and so we use this phrase now and not yet uh, that is a realized eschatology, but the over-realized eschatology would be where we live the not yet in the now. For instance, if you think about the Old Covenant uh, and then the New Covenant, if you think uh, the Israelites and what they were forced to live under um, in the uh, Mosaic Code, uh, pork was forbidden, bacon was a bad thing. Under the new covenant, God had determined that all uh, God had declared that all foods were clean, and so bacon was a good thing. And so that that concept, that mindset, then gets 
translated into some of these issues that the Corinthians are dealing with. So, for instance, in the Old Covenant, divorce is limited. There are certain prescriptions and um, ways that one needed to go about divorce. However, uh, this over-realized eschatology would say in the New Covenant, divorce is unlimited. We can just you know, marry, uh, get unmarried, and then move on and do whatever we want. So, that's one thing. With immorality, immorality was prohibited under the Old Covenant, uh, and some would say under the New Covenant, immorality is fully acceptable. And so there was this idea that uh, that the rules have changed, if you will. And so we're allowed to live under those new rules however we see fit. Some of the problems that Paul is addressing, um, it's very interesting. There is uh, this unique structure in the uh, original text um, there is a, a phrase that Paul repeats, and it starts new paragraphs, uh, beginning at chapter 7, verse 1. And in the, in the uh, Greek New Testament, it reads, Peri Day. Um, in most English versions, it's translated now concerning or now about uh, sexual immorality, now about lawsuits among believers, now about this. And, and so Paul will, will basically... Um, share these different things but that phrase tends to come early and so if you look in chapter 7 verse 1 you see uh, in the NIV it reads now for the matters you wrote about um, in 725 now about virgins in 81 now about food sacrificed to idols uh, and that occurs in uh, chapter 12 verse 1 um, we see that where Paul says now about spiritual gifts in chapter 16 verse 1 where Paul Paul says now about the collection for God's people. And so we see this uh, repetitive theme um, that is often translated in the, New in the uh, modern versions of New Testament now concerning that indicate these were the issues that the Corinthians were writing about. And so some of those issues, um, as well as some of the others that Paul throws in, would be the idea of unity, that Paul is going to talk a lot about the fact that Unity is the hallmark of the Christian body. As a matter of fact, in John 17, uh, Jesus prayed for his church and he said, Father, I pray that you make them one as you and I are one. So Paul recognized that unity was something that was crucial. And so he is going to deal with that issue of unity. Um, we, some might say church discipline. I'm going to use the phrase sin-loving disciples. Uh, how do we deal with those people who are caught in sin? Um, they are living in sin and uh, loving the sin that they are living in um, rather than rejecting it and seeking to distance themselves from it. How do we deal with those? So Paul is going to deal with that. Uh, Paul deals with the issue of divorce, marriage, and remarriage kind of as a, cup, uh, a triplet there. Uh, how do we deal with these issues in these troubling times? Should we get married um, should we get divorced? And, and so Paul deals with that issue. Uh, then also the idea of some basic doctrine, um, particularly in regards to worship and spiritual gifts. Um, he's going to deal with some ordered issues there. How, how do we handle those issues properly? And then finally, resurrection hope. Uh, if, if in fact we have been, um, if Jesus has been raised, how does that affect our Christian life 
and how should we then live our lives based on that fact. As we have looked in in previous um, opportunities, we always want to see Paul's argument. Uh, it's my belief that Paul is using an Aristotelian type argument. We, we've looked at the structure of these letters. There is always an X to Y. Um, I, Paul, and Timothy to the church at Corinth, or and sometimes that is expanded. And there's always this formal greeting of of grace and peace. Uh, so Paul expands the normal uh, Hellenistic type letter from just grace to grace and peace. And then he goes into um, the body of the letter. Generally, there's this, uh, in most in most letters, you have this thanksgiving where Paul is going to address a commendation in some way, shape, or form to the church. Not always, as we saw in the in the letter to the Galatians, there is not one. Uh, in most cases, it is a commendation around the issues of faith, hope, and love. And as we move into the next section, we're going to see that, that Paul is going to instruct the church regarding faith, hope, and love. So not only does he measure the church by faith, hope, and love, but he's going to instruct them by faith, hope, and love. And then, so as we look at Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians, if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18, I think we see the foundation of all of Paul's argument. Uh, while he doesn't necessarily repeat this phrase, he sets this foundation and then he builds on this foundation. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So Paul, in essence, is saying there that this idea that the world couldn't through normal means of investigation, whether that be the scientific method, whether that be any kind of intellectual pursuit, they could not know God. The knowledge of God only has come through this idea of wisdom and the wisdom is seen in, God's wisdom is seen in the quote-unquote foolishness of the cross. If you look at chapter 2, uh, verse 1, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. And so, um, I think Paul's argument is based around this concept, um, the wisdom of different things. And so Paul is going to share with us the wisdom of divine discipline. That there is a time when, just like we must discipline our children in order to mold their character, God must discipline us, or the church must discipline those who claim to be followers of him. So there's the wisdom of divine discipline. Uh, there's the wisdom 
of divine perspective. The idea that um, sometimes when it comes to our personal possessions, when it comes to how we ought to uh, live amongst one another, uh, it is okay to understand that if I go without something in this life, if I have to give up something in this life, that's okay. Because there is something that is greater, something that I've been called to that, that exceeds what this life can offer. So understanding the promise of the not yet life, even though we live in the now. Then there is the wisdom of divine order, where Paul basically talks about the fact that there is an understanding that all of us must have, that God has created certain things to be in a certain way. Uh, Christ is the head of the church. And in as much as Christ is the head of the church, we must listen to him and obey him. We don't get to do things our own way. And then he goes on to apply those same principles to husbands and wives. He talks about the wisdom of love. Uh, this is in this this uh, section about spiritual gifts, but I think it's also in this in this section about uh, the body and um, how we deal with one another in the Lord's Supper. We should wait on one another. Um, the Corinthians would share a love feast, and some people were just hoarding all the food, and and poor people would go without. And so Paul, in in a unique way, is sharing with them there is a wisdom to the love that we share with one another. And then finally, the wisdom of the resurrection. That if Christ has not been raised, in reality our faith is in vain. Because the one enemy that must be defeated in order for Christianity to be true is death. And so if Christ was not raised, which apparently was a false teaching that was making its way around the Corinthian believers, um, Paul says, uh, we have to understand that the resurrection is a, is a reality. And so um, I, w I just wanted to look at that in closing. First uh, Corinthians 15, verse 1, he says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, with which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time. Drop down to verse 12. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. So again, Paul says there is a wisdom to the resurrection, and that wisdom is something that gives us hope. Uh, the audience of the church that Paul was writing to is Gentile believers from pagan backgrounds as well as Jewish believers that would have come from different parts of the Roman Empire. Uh, but I think the other key, there were divisive believers there. There were people who wanted to keep this disunity going. And that is one of the things that Paul is trying to, to help them to understand. Because they have misunderstood God's reconciliation of bringing us all into oneness, that in that oneness we must learn to live uh, and to love each other. 
And so that is Paul's argument in a nutshell. So now we turn our attention to the book of Romans. Uh, the book of Romans is uh, an incredible book, an incredible gift to us in the New Testament. Its relationship to reconciliation, in my opinion, uh, others do not share this opinion, but in my opinion it's the magnum opus of reconciliation. Uh, in order to fully understand the reconciliation that we live in, we have to understand the book of Romans. So I take the book of Romans as um, a didactic epistle in which Paul is laying out the essence of his message. Um, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about a little bit later. This is the essence of his kerygma, his proclamation. And it is recorded for us in posterity's sake. Paul is more than likely writing this from Ephesus. Could be Corinth, but uh, probably Ephesus. And his desire is to head off this false teaching that is sort of fomenting the Jewish-Gentile conflict. So, uh, as we talked about in, in 1 Corinthians, this letter probably lines up with Corinthian A, which is the letter we have lost, um, a letter that was meant to establish the church. And so Paul is basically seeking to countermand the influence of this, this uh, false teaching. And in the, in the church at Corinth, it's leading to some practical issues. Um, in, in the book of Romans, we see more doctrinal truths and that perhaps that might be why God has preserved the two letters that he has, so we get to see sort of both sides of the coin. I think it's important to understand that Paul's desire is, in, in fact, to go to Rome, uh, but he, he has never been to Rome. He did not have the opportunity to establish this church. Um, we'll talk about where it came from, but Paul's desire is to go to Rome. If you look at Romans chapter 15, Verse 23, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there, after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. So, uh, Paul wants to go see the Roman believers but he also knows he has to go back to Jerusalem first in order to carry the collection that he's been collecting from the churches in Macedonia and Greece and Achaia. And so he knows he has to do that. Obviously, we know he gets back to Jerusalem. He's arrested. He will eventually make his way to Rome, but it's going to be under Roman guard. Uh, he will go there as a prisoner uh, and will uh, have the opportunity to testify before kings there. So he doesn't get to go and preach, and so this serves as his preaching to the church at Rome. A couple of issues around the city in the church. Uh, obviously, uh, this is the capital city of the Roman Empire. This is the seat of power. Uh, it is the um, heart of where Rome rules from, so there's a mixed population. You have people from all over the empire. Uh, it's a very transient culture. People are coming and going. Uh, think of Washington, D.C. You have senators and congressmen who come there who technically are not from that area but live there for a time being in order to govern. We know that the church was not established by Paul, but more than likely uh, early traveling converts there 
um, perhaps even people who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when uh, the church was first established, it's possible that some came to faith there who then returned to Rome and set up churches. Um, another interesting concept is the idea of Priscilla and Aquila. So in order to um, understand Paul's relationship with Priscilla and Aquila, we have to look back in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So, interesting, Priscilla and Aquila may have been uh, Jews who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, heard the gospel, went back to Rome, and then later get kicked out of Rome. They moved to Corinth, and, and there Paul meets them. Priscilla and Aquila are tent makers, and so Paul uh, is able to spend quite a bit of time with them, and uh, obviously we're very instrumental in his ministry. Um, this is probably what is referred to as Paul's kerygma. Um, what we mean by that is proclamation. That is just a Greek word that means proclamation. Uh, it's translated preaching or proclamation. But in Titus, we saw that Paul, uh, in, in the introduction to that letter, as Paul was talking about his apostleship, that he was an apostle of God. He was a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ who, whose responsibility it was to call people to faith in God, to call God's people to faith, and to also give them a knowledge of the truth. And in doing so, Paul said, I do that by proclaiming, by preaching. And that was God's design. That was how God was going to demonstrate, unveil his gospel, his good news to the world was through the preaching of the gospel. So it's my belief that this is Paul's proclamation concerning the gospel. Um, that's going to be the majority of the book um, up through about chapter 9 or so. And then Paul's going to make a digression to explain the state of this Jewish-Gentile conflict. It is something that is underlined, and we haven't talked about this a lot, but in reality, if you think about the, the uh, first century, Judaism was not really Judaism, but it was probably more like Judaisms. Um, you had the Sadducees who tended to run the temple, um, and then you also had the Pharisees that tended to run the synagogues. You had the priests, you had the Levites, you had the, the teachers of the law, the scribes, and you had all these different factions of Judaism. And so in reality, the church in some senses was just seen as another sect of Judaism. And in that, you had mixed populations of, of Jews and Gentiles. And so it's very, po uh, you know, nowhere else in Judaism did you have Jews and Gentiles in close proximity, except in this sect called the Way, or the, the Way of the Nazarene, what, what we know is the church. And so it's very possible um, that it, Paul's purpose in chapters 9 through uh, 11 is just to explain um, where this Jewish-Gentile conflict comes from and to understand uh, God's uh, plan, uh, his redemptive plan in all of history. And in doing so, it helps to squash some of that conflict. And then 
Paul in chapter 12 through the end of the book is going to go into an imperative section. Um, in uh, chapter 16, in Paul's closing remarks, we have a very uh, famous statement where Paul says, Now to him who is able, uh, this verse 25, Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, there's that word kerygma, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. So in reality we have, you know, in Paul's closing remarks, he, he is telling us what the book of Romans is about. It is God's redemption explained. Um, this is God's gospel. Uh, this is the, the the righteousness that God has longed to reveal uh, from the days of the garden. And he has been unveiling it throughout history. Uh, so from Genesis up through the book of Romans, God has been unveiling it. Uh, and in the book of um, Romans, in a sense, I think Paul is saying the curtain's been ripped off. And now we, we can see behind the curtain. And so the mystery is unveiled. Uh, and, and in that process, God's righteousness has been revealed. And how we can have the righteousness of God. And as we do that, that process is called reconciliation. So I think that's kind of what, what Paul is um, addressing in this issue. And then we jump into... Uh, Paul's argument and and Paul's argument is a somewhat complex argument and so I'm going to essentially allow Paul to share his argument so I'm going to read um, some rather large sections of scripture as I give you this this argument Um, so hopefully you won't get bored with this but uh, I think it is important Um, I think Paul begins with the idea that righteousness is required if mankind is going to reconstitute his relationship to God, or better, if the relationship between God and man is going to be reconstituted, it's going to require righteousness. Because God, who is the greater of the being, he is the self-existent creator, is a righteous God. And mankind, by his sin, has proved that he is not righteous. So, uh, in uh, Romans chapter 3, Verse 5, it says, But if our unrighteousness brings out uh, God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say then? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? On us? I'm using a human argument. And then uh, down in verse 9, What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. In the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. So, 
in this section, Paul is pointing out the fact that if this relationship that God instituted in the beginning is going to be reconstituted, it is going to be, first of all, by God, and it is going to require righteousness. And then uh, the second point that Paul makes is that righteousness is provided. In verse 21, immediately after that section, he says, But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Notice this is something, according to Paul, that has been uh, being revealed throughout time. Just the Jews weren't able to see it. This righteousness from God comes from comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God did. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice, because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand and unpunished. He did, did it to demonstrate His justice at the present time. So so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So here we see that God is providing this righteousness. Uh, just to uh, further that point, chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. Notice here he's he's delving into that Jewish-Gentile conflict. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is the father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. And so uh, here I think Paul is making the argument, not only is righteousness required, but righteousness has been provided. And where does that righteousness come from? Chapter 5, verse 1, righteousness is imputed by God's providence and sovereignty. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Down in verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice over and over again in that section, by God, through Christ, by God, through Christ. So righteousness is required, righteousness is provided, and then thirdly, righteousness is imputed by God's providence and sovereignty. Therefore, righteousness is obedience that comes from faith. Uh, This this, uh, occurs over and over and over again. Uh, As a matter of fact, Paul begins his letter uh, in chapter 1, in his opening, in, in verse 5, uh, he says, Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. Uh, chapter 6, uh, let's see, verse 11, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So over and over and over again in, in uh, chapter 8, um, um, let's see, chapter 8, verse 5, those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So we see over and over again that this righteousness is apparent in our lives as an obedience that comes from our faith in God. It's not an obedience to attain the righteousness, but rather it comes from the righteousness righteousness that is already in us. Uh, and to me, the quintessential passage on this, if you look at chapter 12, uh, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, this is your spiritual act of worship. Don't conform any longer to this world, but be transformed. So, uh, Paul's argument, righteousness is required. Righteousness is provided by God. Righteousness is imputed to us. It's given to us by God's providence and God's sovereignty. And then finally, righteousness is obedience that comes from faith. Again, it's very apparent in this letter that um, Paul is telling us that the uh, audience is Jewish and Gentile because he constantly talks about those who are under the law, those who are not under the law. So, And I would tell you much could be said in almost every case in the New Testament that the audience is a Jew, Jewish-Gentile audience. Finally, we come to the book of 2 Corinthians. Um, as I said, we're not going to spend a lot of time with this, just a couple little points that I want to bring your attention to. Um, Second Corinthians, uh, the relationship to reconciliation. Paul is saying, um, what is the ministry of reconciliation like? Uh, if we have been reconciled, then we are all participating in this ministry of reconciliation. Uh, again, this occurs during the period of practical and doctrinal clarity, where Paul is uh, shoring up these things in the church. Now, there are still some of those remaining issues of false teaching and the Jewish-Gentile conflict that come up. It was more than likely written from Macedonia on Paul's third missionary journey, probably somewhere between six months to a year after 1 Corinthians. We don't know exactly, but somewhere in that time. Uh, after Paul had visited Corinth, he receives word from Timothy regarding the reception of the second letter. So that would have been 1 Corinthians. Um, so Paul sends a letter, that's Corinthian A, and they misunderstand it. So Paul sends the second letter, which is our 1 Corinthians in our New Testament. And then he receives word back from Timothy, hey, some of the people are kind of bad-mouthing you. Some of them are questioning, questioning your authority. Uh, some of them are not thinking that they have to obey for these reasons. So Paul sends Titus uh, into Macedonia to collect monies for the church at Jerusalem. And while Titus is doing that, he sits down and pens some letters, um, one of which we believe is Second Corinthians. So if if you think about this, 
there's another issue, um, again, going back to letters A, B, and C. Letter A, we do not have, but we believe that is the first letter that was written to the Corinthians. Uh, in my opinion, it was probably along the lines of Romans, um, much like the book of Romans um, <clears throat> in that venue. But we don't have that. And that letter was misunderstood, and so Paul clarifies that in letter B what we call 1 Corinthians in our New Testament. However, in uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verse 8, Paul refers to a what scholars refer to as the sorrowful letter, or the letter of sorrow that caused sorrow. And some see in that a third letter that we do not have, called the sorrowful letter. Uh, they term this letter C, uh, and they would then put letter D as 2 Corinthians. So it's possible that there were four letters written to the church at Corinth, two of which we have B and D, that would be First and Second Corinthians, and then A and C are letters that we do not have. Um, I will leave that up to the scholars to debate. Uh, I don't have a dog in the hunt, so it doesn't matter to me. But uh, I think it's important that you understand that. And all of those uh, issues do come from the text itself. So I think it's an important issue to at least be aware of. We've already talked about the fact that uh, Corinth was a premier city in Greece. It was uh, much like a modern New York City or London or Paris. It was a commercial hub. Um, it was the most immature, mature body of believers in the New Testament. And so we have this understanding that uh, while they have a lot of truth, they're not obeying a lot of the truth that they do have. And I think that is uh, certainly a word of caution for all of us. Some of the uh, themes and, and topics that are dealt with in the book, Paul spends quite a bit of time talking about his travel plans. Uh, I, you know, I plan on coming to visit you. I'm going to stay here for so long and then I'm going to, uh, do this and then I'm going to come to you. Um, so Paul is saying, Hey, I'm on my way. Um, he also deals with some practical issues. He says, uh, I want to make sure that any disagreements between me and you in regards to my letters does not affect the collection for the suffering church in Judea. And I think, you know, for us, there's a, a message in this that even though we may have issues uh, that we disagree with different people, especially in church, we should never use our uh, wallets as a way to punish church leaders for our disagreement with them and then thereby harming somebody else, uh, those that are in need. Uh, I think there's an excellent issue to be talked about in that particular venue, especially during this time when um, we could be seeing uh, the cusp of many people who are in need, who are suffering in our own church. Then I think Paul talks um, about true teachers teachers versus false teachers. Um, there's a section in which he deals with that issue or topic, and then true ministry versus false ministry. He's going to use phrases like the quote-unquote super apostles. Um, in this uh, book. It's a very personal book in which Paul's own apostolic authority is addressed, and so he's going to have to defend himself. Some some rather creative things that Paul shares. 
So if I were to state a summary of Paul's argument, I would say it this way. Uh, The new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Therefore, cheerfully give to those in need and so participate in the superior ministry. But examine yourself to prove that you belong to the superior ministry. In other words, guard, guard your faith in this process. Don't, don't become arrogant. Don't uh, Make sure that you are looking to yourself uh, and examining yourself. So again, the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Therefore, cheerfully give to those in need and so participate in the superior, min- superior ministry. But examine yourself to prove the superiority of the new covenant ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. And at the end of the book, um, there is a very unique Trinitarian benediction uh, that, as a matter of fact, uh, was read over us. And I'm going to, uh, I don't want to embarrass myself by not being able to remember the series um, but when I say the benediction, you will remember uh, Mark Christian prayed this over the congregation over and over again. And I think it's a beautiful benediction uh, where it says this, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Um, it's a beautiful benediction and it, it beautifully sums up the ministry of reconciliation that Paul um believed he was dealing with that it is the grace of Christ that leads us towards the love of God. Um, Jesus was not on the cross earning the love of God for us. He was on the cross demonstrating the love of God to us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And it is his grace that draws us to that love on the cross. And when we realize the love of God, the love that God has for us, through the Spirit's power, it promotes a love of of our fellow human beings around us. Uh, And that comes from this holy fellowship that is fostered by the indwelling Spirit of God. So we might say it this way, it is the grace of Christ which leads us towards the love of God. And the love of God, when realized, through the Spirit's power, promotes the love of man, the holy fellowship fostered by the indwelling Spirit. Uh, Jesus said to his disciples, All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So as we close out our time together this week, I just want to encourage you, this is an opportunity, a unique moment in history, to be the body of Christ, to demonstrate the love of God, as the Spirit has uh, fostered in us this love of one another, to care for one another, uh, to give as we need to give, to sacrifice as we need to sacrifice, to be willing to lose things that perhaps uh, we thought we couldn't live without. Uh, I think God is calling all of us to examine ourselves. And as we examine ourselves, we will find that these things that we leave behind um, for the greater good provide more blessing than we ever thought we could have had in keeping them. 
So as we close, let me just uh, pray for all of us. God, we thank you for your grace, for your love, and for your spirit. God, we know how desperately we need your grace. We know how desperate you were to love us that you sent Christ. And God, how much we need your spirit to continue to live in us and to, to bring about a righteousness that results in obedience to you, to the faith. And so, God, we pray, may the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of you, God, and the fellowship of your Holy Spirit be with us all in this time. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.